I'm Frank Rossi from TurfNet Radio. This is Frankly Speaking. My guest today, Jim Copenhauer, the principal at Pelusa Golf. Now, Jim's been a frequent guest on the show, so I'm not going to spend a long time introducing him because we only have about 40 to 45 minutes to really talk about the kinds of things I want to talk about. So it suffices to say, he's been a favorite of the show, and a lot of that is the analytical approach he takes to looking at the business of golf. And I felt strongly, and you know, from my perch, it's a little bit easier than when you're a golf superintendent, but from my perch as an academic and the study of these operations from a holistic perspective... Coming from the ground, so to speak, is where I come from. And Jim would be more concerned about the way the business aspects of this work and how they fundamentally influence decisions that successful business owners use. And so you'd almost look at him, I would look at him as the Theo Epstein of golf analytics, Jim. And as a former (laughs) Marine, uh, welcome you back to the show. Nice to have you here from Chicago. Thank you, sir. As we were talking earlier, uh, spring has not yet reached Chicago, and uh, unfortunately it's going to be a kind of a tough start for the season for the northern climbs, but we'll find a way to, to battle our way back. And, you know, when you say that, Jim, what you mean is your weather-based potential rounds and how many people will actually go out, because i got to believe uh, in your model Icy cold winds at 36 degrees does not have a very high participation rate expected. Right. And so to your point, I mean, for years people have said, well, the weather's kind of generally been better or kind of generally been worse. And 10 years ago we designed a a model, and and that's with a little M, not a capital M, uh, that tracks golf playable hours. And it looks at um, temperature, both absolute and relative. It looks at precipitation. It even looks at wind speed. Because we've found that you know, wind uh, sustained winds above ten knots tends to depress uh, interest in our sport. Uh, so you're right. We're looking at golf playable hours, and we're doing it market by market. Uh, and every month we publish that. And I can tell you that quantitatively, for the Great Lakes in the north uh, northeast, it, it has been a very poor April. Uh, end of March, and compared both the last year, which wasn't great, and the 10-year norm, uh, which is really what we pay attention to. Mm-hmm. And so compared to the 10-year norm, the, the, the potential for people to even play golf because of the weather conditions is what percent of normal, if you don't mind me asking? We're running about, if I had to throw a blanket over it, we're running about 5% behind the 10-year norm for golf playable hours through the end of April. And, and again, when you say golf playable hours, we're 5% less, but that could be a fair amount relative to the few number of people that might be playing at this time. Yeah, we we balance that for, you know, how many rounds are done in Chicago in April. So to your point, a 5% deficit in April is not the end of the world. But just for reference, April represents nationally about 4% of the total year's rounds. So you look at that and say if we lost, you know, 5% of 4%, it's about a half percent. And somebody would say, well, come on, Jim, half a percent, that's not a very big number. But on 460 million annual rounds, half a percent is a real number of rounds that you have to pay attention to. And so since you brought up that number of rounds, and I like like you do to live in the world of uh, 
data and analytics. And I was joking off air before we went on. I tried to joke on you. It seemed to work. So I'm going to say it just like the Pope's message annually at Easter. Uh, many of us await your state of the industry report. Uh, that yep. came out this past year in February at the golf show, not at the superintendents. And I, of course, would lobby again for you to come to the superintendents. And maybe by being on this episode of Frankly Speaking, we can get that uh, rally to uh, get you back there to the show. Because I think this state of the industry message, Jim, you give is, unfortunately, I think many times for most conditions, a bit of cold water. Yep. <laughs> it's a bit of cold water, but but in the end, uh, I, I always feel like this uh, hopeful message that you say, hey, you know, this is looking pretty good. So what, can you give us a couple of minutes on what your perspective of 17 was and how 18's begun besides the fact that the playable hours and likely the impact that's having? Yeah, sure. So uh, as you and I well know, uh, 15 years ago I got in this industry, everybody called us the industry contrarians, and now in 2018, as what we've said over those years has actually come true, um, I think that we're earning more of a reputation now, which should have been from the beginning of the industry realists, and there's quite a difference. Uh, Jay Karen of the NGCOA calls me the industry provocateur. Because to your point, I asked the question that nobody else wants to ask. I get so stuck with of, that a fair amount myself, Jim. Yep, yep. <laughs> uh, we are kindred spirits there. <laughs> so just to kind of run through the top-line numbers, uh, our summary of 2017 was what we called solidly sideways. Uh, and, and as you know, last year we said, you know, flat is the new up in golf, uh, mm-hmm. and we're seeing a continuation of that trend. So if we look at it um, at the top of the pyramid, if you will, the number of golfers was basically flat at about 21 million. So the good news is we only lost 100,000 golfers last year, which is uh, just a fraction of a percent. And we've been shedding hundreds of thousands, if not millions, in the past. So the good thing there is that the rate of decline is slowing. It does seem like we're flattening out, which to me starts to signal that uh, there may be a bottom here. Um, you had mentioned in rounds, uh, we're about 3% off, so we ended the year at 448 million rounds. The good part of that, uh, using Pellucid's weather tracking, is that our golf playable hours were actually off 2%, so the vast majority of what we lost in rounds uh, was due to unfavorable uh, weather conditions. So the key measure we tracked there is utilization, mm-hmm. and utilization was basically flat. It, it fell tens of points, which is not a bad result in today's environment. So we're not at capacity, but our utilization is good enough that it's still keeping us going. Yeah, our utilization is about 52% nationally. And you look at that and you say, wow, that's a really low number. But if you just think about golf, I mean, we're never going to be at 100% capacity. We're never going to consistently fill the 8 o'clock tea time on Monday morning. But I look at, like, hospitality and other industries, and I know we'll touch a little bit later on, you know, how we compare and what we can learn. But, I mean, a good the airlines are running about 85% utilization. The hotels are between 80 and 82%. I think that golf fully realized probably is never going to exceed 70%. So to me, the real game for us is how do we get from 52% up to 70%. That's really the opportunity. Well, we let, me, let me not waste another minute and get to the question. I always like asking you guys uh, studying the business of golf because, you know, I see firsthand many times visiting with superintendents, 
you know, the resources aren't growing in many cases. Um, you know, infrastructure needs, as we've talked about in the past, uh, are growing. The need for them uh, is growing. Will some of the the utilization um, come from uh, some absorption, some closing of facilities? Yeah, that's a great question. It goes to the third metric in the state of the industry. Uh, unfortunately, uh, we continue to see we had about 175 closed and about 25 opened in 17. Uh, so we were net down about 150, which is just slightly under 1% supply reduction. And unfortunately, we're still 7 or 8% oversupplied. We're working it off at about 1% a year. So the way we read the tea leaves right now, we're still six to seven years away from what we would call supply-demand equilibrium in a place where everybody can make money without having to steal everybody else's customers. So unfortunately, it's just it's too slow right now uh, for where we need to go. Yeah, and I have to say, I again saw this firsthand. I was traveling in the greater Toronto area, and um, one of the things that there were there were these four or five golf courses in the greater Toronto area in these particular areas where could serve as very important transportation hubs that once the it looked like once the land value uh, got high enough and it made sense um, there seemed to be there's membership votes but there seems to be some cashing out yep. and so what I also noticed and to your point the other clubs got healthier. So yep. the, that's the hopeful message here. But what I have to say is these six to seven years on guys in my business trying to keep together, I don't want to say a jalopy, but something that needs more attention. Yep. You and I know that six to seven percent that that takes, you know, that six to seven years of closing are where all those hard decisions are made, whether to, you know, uh you know, invest in the clubhouse or invest in the irrigation system. And then in Chicago, right in your backyard, Green Acres closed up uh, on the heels of a clubhouse renovation. So, you know, I'm sure I'm going to get myself in all kinds of trouble for talking like this about Chicago. (laughs) All my buddies are going to come and smack me around. But you see the point I'm trying to make here as as an advocate for the the Greengrass channel on this on this television show we're talking about here. um, I'm a little concerned that. Man, can we encourage – what's going to encourage people to close these things up quicker, Jim? Yeah, I, I, there's like ten ways we could go from that, so let me stay focused here on like one or two. So you're right. Uh, the superintendent is at the tip of the spear for what we call deferred CapEx. And so in this really tough environment, what they're being asked to do is to just hang on. And to your point, any of us who have been there, I, uh, there's a TV show uh, that I just finished called uh, Long Road Home and guys are in the middle of a firefight, and the guy's saying, I'm going to send support in five minutes, and the guy said, I won't be here in five minutes. <laughs> so I can kind of relate to the superintendent where somebody's saying, you just got to hold this thing for it together for him and avoid these big cap X's for a little while longer. And the superintendent says, how long is that? And Pellucid is unfortunately coming in and saying six or seven years. And for a lot of the superintendents, while it's not a life-and-death decision, Six or seven years is not a realistic time frame to keep operating their facilities on paper clips and rubber bands and, and bailing wax. So I, I, I empathize, and the superintendents from where I sit are doing an amazing job. But you're right, at some point, you, you can't fix that sprinkler system anymore. At some point, 
you can't apply fewer and fewer chemicals to actually produce the conditions that are going to make golfers want to come and do your support. So as I look at it, I, I think it's going to be very challenging for them in that six- to seven-year window. Unfortunately, um, there's a certain number of them and their owners that are just not going to be able to bridge that gap. What about those clubs at the other end that actually are in good shape, but because the American golfer doesn't want to be brutalized every time they go out and play a darn golf course and feel like they're, you know, getting all their clothes ripped off. It's so embarrassing to try to hit the ball 450 yards on a par four. How much do you see the conditioning good, but the golf course just in the wrong place and trying to hit a market that doesn't exist anymore? Yeah. Well, a great example of that would be here in Buffalo Grove, which is a northwest suburb of Chicago. We built, as a municipality, about 15 years ago, a second course called the Arboretum. And basically, the Arboretum was a higher-quality, tougher, tighter layout. Uh, And what they found was they've now gone in in the past 15 years and softened the course twice, not just once, but twice, to try to appeal to folks because the average handicapper like me, I shoot between 95 and 100, I'd take my $40 round and I'd have to add $15 worth of balls to it. (laughs) And so I'd basically say that's a $55 round of golf for me because for the average golfer, when you've got out-of-bounds left and huge lake right, you know, that's just not a fun experience for me, and it's a more costly experience for me. So uh, we see that. The challenge is for a lot of these properties You can't put a lot of money in softening it because the way it was architected from the beginning, you know, it wasn't really designed to be a soft course. More of the new stuff that's going in, I'm seeing the architects are paying more attention to how do I make this playable for all skills. But uh, back in the early 2000s and late 1990s, there really was a a Pete Dye-ish penal, pristine, and premium. And unfortunately, that's a number of the supply that's being taken out right now. Stuart did a great, uh, Stuart Lindsay, one of my colleagues, did a great segment in the state of the industry, and he said the NGF message is all the stuff that's being taken out is old supply, it's nine-hole, it's broken down, and the net result is good. The fact of the matter is if you look at it, a disproportionate amount of the supply has been built since 1990 that's being taken out of the ground. And those are situations where somebody looks at it, to your point, says wrong course, wrong place, And there's just not a consumer base for this type of experience. It's got to go. Okay. So let me wrap this segment up before we go to a message from our sponsors with what Mm -hmm. we see so far in 18, other than the weather impacting us. Is it playing out as you imagined at least four months in? I mean, I'm, I'm thinking to a certain extent, you're looking at data from the end of the peak snowbird season in the south. You know, how, how has that market wrapped up and the northern market started to, to kick in? Uh, how has that transition gone? How is golf in the south? Yeah, from what we're seeing, the good thing is that the key measure that we track of utilization, which is played rounds against available rounds, the available rounds, the, the unfortunate weather, are down about 20%. And as you look at it, we're only tracking through golf data tech through, we've got February, March should be out next week, is we're only down about 8% on rounds. So I look at that and I say, to your point, that says the South is performing better, and it basically says that we're not tanking in line with the weather. 
So I look at that, and I'm optimistic that it won't be uh, a train wreck this year, um, but it's going to be very difficult for us sitting where we are in April. It's going to be very difficult for us to post a positive rounds number in 2007, uh, 2018. And, and, and that's because the spring is such an important component to it. Yep. And we have the forecast. One of the things that our weather partner does is the forecast for the year, and it's not showing us any huge favorability in the remaining months in weather. So the other thing that I look at is if you would at least give me better weather for the remaining eight months of the year, then I could more optimistically say we're going to get some of that back. And in our forecast, we're not seeing enough amazingly better weather in the pack eight, uh, eight months to make this up. All I can hope for from our guest, Jim Copenhaver, is that he's not as good at the weather as he is as predicting golf analytics because no one <laughs> wants crappy weather moving forward. If you've just joined me, I'm Frank Rossi. This is the Frankly Speaking Project on the TurfNet Radio Network. We'll be back after this message from our sponsors. Finally, a fungicide that's so much more. Civitas Turf Defense is a fungicide, insecticide, and plant protection product that will change the way you look at turf management. Civitas Turf Defense works within the plant to control diseases and pests, reducing requirements for fertilizers and other pesticides. By enhancing stress tolerance, Civitas Turf Defense can reduce water inputs by up to 25% while maintaining acceptable turf quality. Civitas also increases abiotic stress tolerance for improved tolerance to wear and traffic. And with no known resistance issues, there's no worry about maximum yearly application restrictions. Civitas Turf Defense, plant protection redefined. There's more to the story. Visit CivitasTurf.com. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking. Frank Rossi here on the TurfNet Radio Network. Joined by my pal in Chicago, Jim Copenhaver. Jim regularly writes, I'm fortunate to be a recipient of his OTR, Outside the Ropes. And it is uh, what I like to think uh, as uh, the provocateur in Jim comes out the most in these writings. Uh, I always love when you end with, if I were the king, uh, that's... It's just always a great way if you could control everything. And I, whenever you join me, Jim, I usually have one or two that I like, and I got a couple here today. Um, the one I want to go back to is volume 16, number 10 from last October, where you talked about the relationship that participation and the way golf works with uh, tennis and skiing. So um, also look like sports that have declined, some stabilized you sort of articulate the, 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 the similarities between these sports in this piece. Give me the sort of what you're telling your clients if you're trying to explain this. Here is why we're recommending this kind of a decision based on what we've learned in these other sports. Yep. So first, heaven help us if the industry ever makes me king. <laughs> but I guarantee you we will get the numbers to move one way or the other if anybody ever uh, bestowed that, uh, <laughs> that honor upon me. So let's talk a little bit about other sports because uh, it's instructive to look to other sports that are having success or have done things differently uh, that we could learn from. So the, the pure sports that I pay most attention to for golf or tennis and skiing uh, and they've had kind of different fates and, and different instructions. Um, let's take uh, skiing first. So skiing basically uh, didn't have to reinvent itself, if you think about it that way. I mean, 
They, we had snowboarding, which brought in a new uh, segment of the population, but there was never really any falling out of love with skiing as the fundamental thing. It just became inaccessible and expensive. And so they've done things with season passes. They've done things um, with family programs. They've done things to connect mountains and say, you know, you can use a pass and go from here to here. So skiing success really has been about thinking about ways to repackage their existing product. The other thing that they've done, which I want to tie into some other industries beyond sports, is they've figured out a way, as trips have been falling, they've figured out a way to use dynamic pricing to get more money out of the mountain. Uh, and that's another thing that golf has not picked up. And part of the reason that we haven't picked it up is we have the supply excess. And so the supply excess means there's always an irrational competitor in the marketplace who's willing to sell his product cheaply. <laughs> Skiing has benefited from the, the, uh, the people having an inherent agreement among the major operators of saying we're not going to shoot each other in the foot. So, so I have to interrupt you here because, you know, yeah. for, for those people who might be just uh, dropping in on a conversation with, with us two, I know what you mean, dynamic uh, pricing. Uber is doing this now, right? More people yeah. are experiencing. They might not see it so much with a hotel room or an airline ticket that's behind the scenes. But with Uber, a lot of people are experiencing this because they tell you, it's like, oh, boy, Everybody's looking for a car. You're going to have to pay such and such, and that's dynamic pricing. And so to use that similarity, right, nobody's chasing after golf courses at the rate they're chasing after Ubers. So we, we have this sort of too many places for these people to play golf. So unlike skiing, yes? It is. But the thing is, you can think of surge pricing to the upside, but you can also think of it to the downside, which is we're still out there in in periods where people don't necessarily want to play, and we're saying we might want to take a lower rate in those periods. And we haven't in the past because we've said, well, the problem is that if we take a lower rate, you know, between 8 and 9 on Monday morning, then we have to take a lower rate between 9 and noon on Monday morning, and we have leagues and we have, you know, seniors who come out to play. And so we've been kind of stuck in this box of I don't necessarily want to play dynamic pricing to the downside, because I can't cut it up fine enough. Hmm. And what we're finding is there are tools and approaches out there today where you can start to do some of that. Now, not to the, the extent that the airlines do, where three people sitting side by side in seat A, B, and C have completely different prices, but carving it up and saying, you know, my demand 8 to 9 is a little bit slower, so I'm going to take a different price there. At 9 o'clock, my seniors come out and play, so I'm going to stick to my pricing there. At noon to 2, there's a hole there, and at 3 o'clock, my, you know, independent workers come out. So it's just thinking about our T-sheet both up and down and saying, let's, you know, be more stratified in our pricing, and in doing so, we can, you know, pull more dollars out of our existing product. And so we went help? down this wormhole because I interrupted you in your snowboarding conversation, and what I would say, I guess the question I would ask to get us back there is, it seems like skiing and golf have something also in common. They take up a lot of land, and, and they basically are immersive. You do them for long periods of time. It's not like you can just go play tennis for an hour or two if you want to. So does the yeah. land and the time commitment in skiing make it parallel in some ways? It does. The biggest difference, though, is what I see from where I sit is golf needs to do some reinvention of the product. 
Hmm. So skiing was, they had a product that took a lot of land and it took a lot of time, but they were able to find ways through snowboarding and some more innovative approaches to make that a more appealing product to the masses. Our biggest challenge is the millennials are flatly rejecting golf, and they're rejecting it because it takes too much time, because you can't take your electronics on the course with you, because it doesn't provide instant gratification. And one of the things that I've said is to appeal to that trailing generation, we're going to fundamentally have to make some alteration to our product. And the people from USGA and Royal and Ancient uh, that's heresy to them. Well, you're they're not, like but you're not suggesting the top golfization of golf. You're just saying let's just lighten up a little bit. And I think we've had that conversation before. I'll, I'll bug you again, uh, not to not to 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 disrupt the conversation too much, but um, just some minor things to make the golf more fun. But also back to our previous conversation about design. Listen. Even these kids can't hit it very far because it's harder. You know, I I think I go back to the experience you had just um, with your instruction. You know, it doesn't feel like they cared one way or the other whether you you actually got good. It seemed to be, well, thanks for the lesson. I'm glad I could spend a little bit of time with you. Good luck. Yeah. And that's a great point. It's kind of like I put you in the right positions to succeed, Jim. It's your problem if you can't make it happen. (laughs) Okay, thank you very much. All right. But, no, so as I look at it, I mean, the things that I think we've got to get more serious about is uh, relaxed rules. So we're putting people out on the golf course, and it's like, now, remember, you know, this is out of bounds. This is a lateral hazard. Remember, you can't, you know, pick your ball up. Remember, if you're stymied behind a tree, you've got to whack away at it to get it back in the fairway. And my sense has always been, have fun, keep pace, don't destroy my golf course. (laughs) That's all you need to know to go out and play and have fun. I've been an advocate for years, and I'm not going to outlive it, but I think there's a market for recreational equipment in golf, Mm -hmm. which is anything that a manufacturer can come up with that will get the ball airborne a reasonable distance down the course and fairly straight. And for the 90-some percent of the people who don't carry a USGA handicap and don't play competitively, how do we get them better quicker at the game? And then if they get better quicker and they want to do that stuff, it says you now need to graduate into regulation equipment. That's right. Then you can carry a handicap, and you're going to find it's going to be harder. But I think the vast majority of golfers would stay in recreational equipment. They're not out there trying to better themselves as human beings. They're just out there trying to have fun. Well, and they'll have recreational tournaments. I mean, when I stopped playing hardball, I moved to fast pitch. When I stopped playing fast pitch softball, I moved to arc ball. And I won a couple of Lansing City championships when when I was living in Michigan back in the day. So it's not unprecedented amongst the sports. But, you know, in good host fashion, Jim, I've taken us astray. Where does tennis fit into this? Yeah, so what tennis did, which was very interesting, is they did repurpose their sport. So they had a similar meltdown in golf. They went from about 28 million participants all the way down to 15 million. Uh, It took them over a decade to do it. We're on a similar arc. We peaked at just under 30 million in 2002. We're at 21 million now. I think that we will be sub-20 million before it's all over. And what tennis did is they basically said, you know, we're going to reinvent the product. It's not a three-set match. It's not this. They said, we're going to have cardio tennis, which is you just come out and really what you're doing is working on strokes and getting a cardiovascular workout with an instructor and a group of people you have fun with. 
And they basically said, tennis is no longer a three-set match. We think cardio tennis is a, a viable alternative. They went to low-compression balls. And they said part of the problem with the sport is it's just hard to keep the ball in the court when you start. And so I said, why don't we have low-compression balls? It stays on the racket longer, therefore it stays in the court more often. And much like my recreational equipment, as people got better, they said, I'm going to move up to higher compression balls, and now I can keep it in the court. Life was good. So they're basically now threatening $20 million once again and on a fairly nice trajectory upwards. And that's a different situation than skiing where they didn't fundamentally change the product. Tennis relooked at you know, much of what they were doing and said, we think that we can have a more inviting sport and it doesn't have to be a three-set match. And tennis is a good parallel, Jim, because... It's it's got the same sort of you know long sort of white clothes green grass history sort of uh, you know what you imagine to be the old European uh, approach uh, more rigid waspy approach as I say out loud and, and lose five more <laughs> listeners. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, how did they pull that off? Well, I think the biggest thing there's two things in my mind. Number one, the USTA does not sit as the ultimate arbitrating governing body over the sport of tennis. So they didn't have to get some centralized body to bless and, you know, white smoke, to use your analogy, (laughs) white smoke this thing. This was just something that happened at grassroots level, and you didn't have the USGA fighting it. And unfortunately, in our sport, the couple of times that manufacturers have, you know, tried to say, how can we do this? The USGA has uh, forcefully come out and started running ads against it. So the one thing, tennis didn't have a governing body that was so obsessed with, you know, the tradition and decorum of the sport, and don't you dare cross that. I think the other thing was that uh, in the tennis industry, uh, they just basically, the equipment manufacturers said, we're going to do everything that we possibly can to foster this. We don't really care if we break some rules along the way. Uh, And, again, without the absence of a ruling body who had come down hard on them, the manufacturers were able to take the initiative and say, to the extent that we're comfortable, we're going to play in this new space. Well, and as we wrap up, the you know, while tennis can go to cardio tennis, more and more we have that same problem we've been talking about. Number one, what got us on this conversation was the sort of sedentary society, right, we've become and how that might have abode well for golf. And you see that we've designed golf courses and built our revenue models around our aging population that's going to use carts. So that's how our accessibility is a very sort of embedded component to it, right? I mean, we sort of already built uh, courses and revenue models around uh, increasing accessibility. Yeah. So if you look at our legacy product is an 18-hole round of golf and a riding cart. And as you look at what the millennials and the society coming up behind us want, they want something that is more time compressed, that's flexible, and it gives them some exercise. I mean, I walk most of my rounds. I walk. I play a lot of nine-hole twilight golf. And my off days, I run. And it's kind of like walking nine holes for me is just as good as my off-day run from a cardio. And I, I just feel as an industry, I'm not saying, you know, we want the whole industry to go there, but we should more actively promote that. Uh, it, it's got to be at least a thousand calories that I burn in that nine-hole walk, and I just experience the golf course more. And, and your guys probably appreciate it as well that you know it, it, I take more notice of the care that they put into the course than that grass under my feet when I'm walking across it 
versus when I'm riding. And and I got to tell you, you're exactly right. As we wrap this segment up, Jim, for the millennials, I walked on a bunch of the great golf courses in, in Chicago in the last couple of weeks. And I, at this time of year, it's so cold to ride in a cart. I'm, I dress up for the winter and you bundle up and you walk. And, yep. you know, I just like doing it. I've always done it. It's, a, it's just like riding a bike. You see the countryside better than driving, walking, you see it better than anything else. What I noticed is all the younger guys, I'm the oldest guy, me and Don Cross at Skokie Country Club are the old guys, and they all got their Fitbits on. They're, oh, wow, walk around with Frank, get 17,000 steps, you know? So I'm thinking, why aren't we appealing to millennials this way? They all got those stupid things on. Why don't we market, hey, if you play our course, the typical round will get you your 12,000 steps for the day. Yep. I don't know. <laughs> okay. So you've been listening to Frank give the best idea I've had all day about the Fitbit marketing. I'm with Jim Copenhaver here from Palooza Golf. This is Frankly Speaking on the TurfNet Radio Network. We'll be right back. Golf course superintendents all agree. Traditional core aeration is time-consuming, labor-intensive, and unpopular with golfers. Dryject is a revolutionary service that relieves compaction, increases water infiltration, improves gas exchange, and amends your root zone all at the same time, leaving the turf surface smooth and immediately playable. Best of all, an independent Dryject service professional does it for you, there and gone before you know it. Dryject, the only process in the world that aerates, top dresses, and amends in one pass. Visit dryject.com to locate your nearest Dryject service center. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking. Frank Rossi here in the hills of central New York in Ithaca, New York at Rep Studios with our new producer, Nate Silas Richardson, waving to Nate. For those of you watching on News Channel 6 can see me waving uh, to Nate. My guest today, Jim Copenhaver of Palooza Golf, the principal of Palooza Golf, the mastermind, I guess I would say. You might give you might give Stuart Lindsay some credit, but I, I certainly yeah. would give you a fair amount of credit for this whole thing. And what I've really liked, Jim, about not just the conversations we've just had, but enjoying your writing over the over the period of time is, you know, just like we had that little bicker at the a little bantering about the Fitbits, like, huh. That seems like a good idea. Boy, won't that be interesting? And your latest writing of March 1st, Volume 7, Number 2, talking about a major disruptive play. And and I liked how you used Amazon because I at Cornell we have a lot of food science people here. And a lot of them have been discussing Amazon's move into grocery stores. Certainly Wegmans, which is a Rochester-based outfit here, is is also sort of mindful of that. So you made the move, you made the case that, you know, maybe Golf 2020 uh, is going to bring some kind of move like this. Can you describe for those who uh, aren't uh, privileged enough to get your outside the ropes um, what you're suggesting and some potential impacts? Sure. So my, my thought was that you think about where technology has made these transformative plays. So Uber, Airbnb, uh, et cetera, just completely disruptive plays out of the blue. Those were state industries where it's like, hey, this is the model, we've all, the way we've always done it. We're going to have these evolutionary fixes to them, and it gets better a little bit every year, blah, blah, blah. And all of a sudden, somebody came in from the outside and used technology and just blew the whole thing up and said, forget about that. And I mean, I, I, in my past life, have taken a lot of cabs in New York, 
and it was the worst experience <laughs> with controlled demand where you couldn't get a cab, and all of a sudden Uber comes along, and it's like, boom, problem solved. Yeah. As you mentioned, uh, Amazon buys Whole Foods, and, and the grocery industry is, is changing underneath our feet as we speak. So my comment was, you know, we've got this industry initiative, Golf 2020, which started back in 2000, and they had all these incremental improvement ideas of how we were going to get to um, a billion rounds of golf and 55 million participants by the year 2020, which is rapidly approaching. And unfortunately, we've got 21 million golfers and about 460 million rounds or fewer than we started. And my thought was, I'm not sure that golf will come out of this through some evolutionary process of the industry titans and the caretakers of the industry. I think there is a possible play where somebody will come out of the blue and just fundamentally change our industry. And in that article, I was talking about golf course management. And the theory in the past has been, you know, why isn't there a McDonald's of golf course management? You know, why isn't there a company? There's 15,000 courses in the U.S. Why isn't there a management company that manages 5,000 of them? I mean, the largest one today is not even more than 1,000 courses uh, worldwide. And so kind of what I speculated for people is with the technology as far as point-of-sale systems and the capture of information and better customer experience, uh, and also, and Frank, you and I have talked about this, you know, better, more um, disciplined maintenance, you know, I could see somebody coming in and saying, we're going to run a 1,000 golf courses, and if we could buy them, uh, and right now they're to be had for sale, um, we're going to apply this technology and these standards and processes to it, and we're going to run them as a relatively uniform experience and just completely upset the way the industry has currently done it. So, Frank, you and I have talked about, you know, studying turf conditions and what's the optimal turf condition. It doesn't have to be Augusta National. But also we learned a couple of years ago with this Brown is Beautiful movement where the USGA and everybody else was saying, you know, kind of this firm and fast is the new, the new green. The, the consumer just basically threw up all over that and said, no, I don't expect my golf to be firm and fast. So somewhere in between there, there's technology and statistics that will help us find the right balance and somebody who will come in and apply those and say, here's how you efficiently own and run a 1,000 golf courses. Well, and it's interesting to hear you say that, that firm and fast dilemma on golf course management. I, I have two thoughts as I, as I hear you say this, and some of it is the reason McDonald's can own all those franchises is because they're all built and managed and completely controlled and operated in controlled environments under a similar management system. And so while that certainly can be done in a variety of climates, one of the things I, I find fascinating when we, when we start to talk about corporate golf is just the efficiencies they have in the way they look at it. How long does it take to mow greens? How long does it take to mow fairways? Is that, can, that, can, those, can, that, can that maintenance get done in a shorter period of time? Can automation, so you talk about disruption from one end, I think about it from automation in the other end. What happens, I don't hear any golf superintendents telling me they're flush with labor. So automation yep. is obviously from the management end going to have a big component, but I, I don't want to leave this topic of why we don't have, you know, a McDonald's. I find that a fascinating question, and I guess I go back to the way we build them. 
we, we keep talking, and I hear the USGA saying, and with shot link data, which I think is good, that the, the, the par fours that the Amer- average American golfer plays shouldn't be longer than 375 yards because yeah. they can't hit a green uh, from more than 130 yards more than every other time. At 130 yards, they can hit the green 50% of the time. They can yeah. obviously drive it about 220. I want to come back. I'm going to beat this dead horse until it absolutely is. Now, because I, I can't do anything about my wife's horse, but maybe this horse that you and I are talking about, that, that, that they're just not built for what we got to do. I mean, you know, mountains didn't have to change when snowboarding came, although the, snow, the skiers and snowboarders had some tension. You know, yep. tennis is creating cardio stuff, but they're playing on a tennis court. So, yep. so we're talking about, holy moly, I want to venture to say 80% of the golf courses can't meet those standards of a 375 yep. par four. So is that the obstacle to this disruptive play? I think that's part of it, uh, but as you mentioned, the thing that fascinates Stuart, uh, and he knows a lot more about this than I do, I mean, we do studies of golf courses across the country, and he does a very good, as you've mentioned, time in motion, mm-hmm. and you look at it and you say, you know, a, a mid-priced, municipally operated course, there's a range of hours that it should take to maintain that course, unless you've just got something like Bethpage or something like that, and, and we routinely walk into these places and see numbers that are grossly higher and grossly lower than that mean that we've accumulated over the years. And it basically says, you know, people are just not connecting the dots on this stuff. So I I look at that, and I think there can be much more standardization there. As far as the distances, um, my sense is, uh, to your point, I am that typical golfer. I can still hit the ball about 240, 250, and for me, 150 in is kind of the sweet spot. So I look for tees that say if you're hitting the ball 240, 250 with a good roll on it, and you can hit a green from, you know, 150, it says anything inside 400 is fair game. But you're right, the, the average golfer is a, a little bit shorter off the tee. So I think there are things that we can do, and the superintendents can encourage in the setups that says, hey, you know, how do I go there? But as you mentioned, the problem there is now the traps are not in there in different places. The way we've maintained the golf courses, the landing areas aren't the same. Mm-hmm. So there are things to be done there, but none of those are insurmountable obstacles, to your point, and, and that's something we've got to attack as an industry. And, and, and okay, so now it's, it's interesting where our conversation has wandered, this entire one, and this particular point hasn't come up because it usually does come up, and it seems like now's the right time. You've often instructed this industry to sort of maybe you better just knock it off trying to grow this stupid thing, and you better take care of the people who are actually playing golf. Now, I'm sure you're going to tell me that, well, uh, those people are dying a little quicker than, than we're adding them. But what about the uh, case to be made that we could lose these uh, sort of avid golfers if we try to create a McDonald's, or do you think we'll be able to keep those people happy and just create a whole new scale of these things. Like, you know, all of a sudden there wasn't casually fast food and then there's Panera and five guys and Chipotle and, you know, there's a million of them. So I wonder, could that such a thing happen in golf? Yeah. I think the biggest thing is we have a physical plant and we went through a cycle like 10 or 12 years ago where everybody wanted to build a short course and an executive course because the problem was time. 
And what we're finding is those short and executive courses are not wildly profitable, which says the consumer's issue was time, but creating an executive course was not the right answer. The right answer is taking our physical plants that we currently have and finding ways to repurpose them to multiple audiences. So to your point, for the guy, the traditionalist masochist, who wants to go back to the black tees and have all the hazards in play and the rest of that stuff, great, we got the black tees for you. Knock yourself out. And then for the people who would like a better experience, and several of the courses that I've seen are doing this, out on the range you hit the markers. And basically it says if out on the range you're hitting to the red markers, then you ought to be on the red tees. That's where you're going to have your best experience. So there's some interesting thinking. It's just not been adopted widely kind of around that. But your point is well taken. I mean, we just, I'm putting the finishing touches on the 2017 consumer survey results. And one of the alarming things I'm seeing is our seniors number is down about 100,000, so the 65-plus crowd. Hmm. And within that, what I'm seeing is it's not the 65s to 74s, it's the 75-plus. So we're starting to see the very early stages of our core golf consumer aging out of the sport. So on the, good, on the good side, there's not many sports where you can say we keep people to their 75. On the bad side, the millennials and the group coming behind them, we have got to find a way for this sport to fit their lifestyle because they have to replace those aging out members. And if they don't, then there's just more pain ahead for us, unfortunately. You know, and that raises this last question, Jim, and I'm going to get us both out of here on this. And thank you in advance before we wander down this hole for taking the time to join me. But you made the comment earlier about how we were going for firm and fast um, as a, from a management perspective or from a playability perspective. The Chambers Bay uh, situation aside, I will say, especially in Chicago and a lot of the places that I visited, there's a lot of demand uh, for firm and fast. I would say sometimes when those conditions are actually provided, uh, the golfers were like, well, what I really want was uh, soft and fast, <laughs> um, some version of not firm and fast. And I think while they older folks, if we're aging, are going to like the role they get out of it, this is where I think you're – there's two points here. One is huh, – they ask for it, you give it to them, oh, yeah, that sort of wasn't what I wanted. I'm not worried about yeah. the color. I'm worried about my wrist when I, hit the cl- when I hit the ball. You know, I need it to be fluffed a little bit. And I think yeah. that's the point about the need for this recreational equipment because you could have a firm and fast golf course, and to me that means inherently less inputs. Generally, you're going to use less water to keep it firm and fast. That's typically what we're talking about. It might mean more sand and management otherwise, but ultimately we can do firm and fast. If that's what they want, they want distance, they want to play a a ground game, I'm I'm all good there. Uh, But it is a bit of a dilemma for us, and I wonder if you could shed some light on that whole thing that they might. you said they sort of puked on it. Yeah. Well, I mean, if I remember right, it was the U.S. Open at uh, Pinehurst where they played the men and the women in back-to-back weeks. That's correct. And what I saw of the things coming in from the TV airing, and again, as a researcher, I'd, I'd hate to base my quantitative analysis on that, was people said, boy, you know, it just it looks strange. And to your point, I can't imagine on something that that's hard. I mean, it'd be like playing off of asphalt, wouldn't it? Uh, it was so pretty I, I hard think... out there, and all the golfers on Long Island that I would bump to at Beth Page after that event, and and then the Chambers Bay the next year, they said every time I watch that tournament, I feel like I want to drink a water. 
It looks yeah. just so hot and unappealing to play. Yeah, so to your point, if the superintendents could bring us to that soft landing, and that, I think that will be a tall task, but they're some of the most creative people I've met in my golf career, hmm. of figuring out for your course what is the right compromise. Uh, I know a lot of them have done things with taking uh, maintained uh, acreage out of play, uh, which is also something welcomed by the average golfer in a lot of cases. But I think they're going to have to find that right balance But uh, and for their consumer. But I think the overall thing of the industry trying to push this kind of firm and fast and say we can change the consumer perception, what I've found is it's really hard to change consumer perception unless you've got a lot of time and a lot of patience and a lot of money. And, of course, uh, as we wrap up, Jim, consumer perception, when you think about the golfer as the consumer, uh, you wouldn't describe them as a, uh, a group of people who are liberal in their acceptance of things. <laughs> Would no, you? probably not. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Jim Copenhaver. Jim, thanks so much for taking the time to join us on Frankly Speaking. It's not a problem. I always learn as much as I, I speak on these, so it's a lot of fun, and I'm going to steal your Fitbit idea. All right, great. Thanks a lot. Jim <laughs> Copenhaver, Pelusa Golf. I'm Frank Rossi. I'll be back in a minute with my final thoughts. Another lively and far-reaching conversation with industry provocateur Jim Copenhaver of Pelusa Golf. Jim, a former Marine and likely very disciplined person, seems to approach his chosen field business of golf with an analytical mindset, collect good data, develop reasonable parameters as he does with his Pellucid products, and review the data for trends short and long term to develop a business strategy that keeps the small business, in this case a golf operation, viable. In my mind, this is how we should be managing the golf course landscape with a mind to efficiency, a customer service oriented approach, and the use of analytics based on sound science and reasonable parameters such as color, firmness, and ball roll. A recent conversation has been underway in our industry about attracting young people to be professional golf course managers. Many eschew the idea of a more moderate work week, that a golf course can't be managed properly unless you're there 80 hours a week. Some of our love of this industry, like mine, comes from the love of the grind and the work, but many also report how their failed relationships might have been related to the workload or stress and other health disorders that come from what can be described sometimes as an obsessive workload. The world that Jim Copenhaver uses for his clients, data, analytics, predictions, risk assessments, and for us in turf, for things like the Growing Degree Day models, these will all aid our ability to manage the golf course more precisely and efficiently with that most precious resource, time. Thank you for joining me on this episode of Frankly Speaking. You can find us at turfnet.com or subscribe on Blog Talk Radio, Google Play, Stitcher, and iTunes. If you listen through iTunes, leave us a review. For the Frankly Speaking Project, I'm Frank Russell.